Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and across the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. Today we are discussing one of the most enduringly important subjects of modern India, the Indian city. One of the most visible signs of India's economic development in the past 75 years has been the growth of its cities. Some of them are now amongst the largest on the planet, both in terms of area and population. More interestingly, our last census shows a faster growth rate of small townships and urban areas as well. As the world's most populous country grows and urbanizes, the quality of life in its cities will start to determine how well India can grow and what quality of life it in turn provides to its citizens. Indian cities are far from perfect. They are often not well planned. They are coping with problems of rapid growth, inefficient use of land, and the supply of other resources. And Indian cities often suffer from a lack of basic amenities and safety-related problems. In this context, the spread of COVID-19 led to a renewed debate on the nature and design of our cities, and some even argued for a fundamental rethink of how our cities should be designed and governed. Many of these issues are discussed at length in the excellent new book, India's Blind Spot, Understanding and Managing Our Cities. And the book's author, Devashish Dhar, is our guest at Interpreting India today. Devashish is a former public policy specialist at Niti Aayog. He is a Mason Fellow from the Harvard Kennedy School and Lee Kashing Scholar from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. Devashish, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you so much, Anirudh. And thank you so much for creating such a brilliant podcast, which is a sort of go-to podcast for us policy enthusiasts. Thanks, Avashish. So let's start. I wanted to start by asking you about what prompted you to think about cities in this current context and what prompted your investigation. Right. So uh, two things. One, just like uh, other Indians who are invested in India's growth story or at least curious about which way are we heading. So I, just like others, 1.5 billion others, uh, I was interested in how cities are doing and where we're heading and so on and their role in the larger economic growth. So one is that part. The second is because of my vocation uh, in the sense of I'm a policy professional and I joined Niti Aayog to write uh, national policy documents. I was late for a meeting essentially and uh, for the sectors on which I had already worked were picked by my by my colleagues who have also worked on those sectors and they had uh, even better expertise actually so to speak. But I got few sectors and the vice chairman of Niti Aayog asked me like, these are the sectors left out and why don't you pick a few of them? And I quickly glanced through, I had 30 seconds to pick, you know, a few sectors out of the 15 sectors that were offered to me. And I quickly thought, which are the ones which will be the binding constraint to India's growth story in 21st century. And I quickly thought of, uh, I saw urbanization, I saw water resources, I saw energy, I saw sustainability, and those are the sectors I actually picked uh, to work on. But uh, for other sectors, I could find a sort of a, baseline book, you know, that would give you the entire sort of gamut of issues and evidence and probable sort of policy pathways that I can explore on, you know, to build on my work. Uh, but for organization, I did not find uh, any such book, honestly. But three years after that realization, I thought, well, why shouldn't I write this book? And um, 
purely because of the virtue of the fact that I was in Niti Aayog and I met India's, you know, uh, craziest innovators to richest uh, business folks to farmer representatives and labor representatives and so on. So it was quite an interesting journey for me to sort of receive the thoughts, you know, from all around. And uh, I had, um, I anchored various uh, stakeholder consultations, you know, again, which is a great place to sort of receive ideas from other folks. So then I thought, well, if I have the ideas, I have the curiosity, I have uh, the interest and so far, uh, so-called training for such a, for such an exercise, I thought I'll give it a shot and see how uh, well it is received by the larger uh, population. That's great. And, and I'm glad you wrote something that's accessible to the wider public. Uh, I want to pick off on something you said. You used the phrase binding constraint. So why do you think urbanization is a binding constraint for India's long-term development? Uh, right. So binding constraints are what? I mean, uh, binding constraints, uh, just to think uh, like an economist, uh, you know, it, it is something that if the bottlenecks are removed, it would unleash the next frontier of growth. You would you would uh, move towards the new productivity frontier, uh, so to speak. But if you do not sort of address those binding constraints, it is it is likely possible that the productivity frontier would sort of fall down, and you know uh, the the pace and acceleration of growth would sort of decline uh, or would not maintain fair pace. So, well, that is what I thought is binding constraints and urbanization. I think so because it's essentially a contest between two forces. Uh, one is uh, uh, agglomeration forces, the other is congestion forces, essentially. And and you are just trying to see how that will play out in cities and how that will sort of contribute to state growth and economic, uh, national economic growth and so on. And that's why it is, I mean, and we are seeing a bunch of those forces sort of playing out, like agglomeration forces is one sort of definition of forces, but you see different sort of uh, ways in which agglomeration forces play out, right? And similarly for congestion, like, I mean, congestion forces is just not traffic alone but how much you pay for portable water or private solutions to public problems or for uh, private security and so on and so forth, right? And and just to see that, you know, the success of cities historically has sort of been anchored in the contest between these two forces. I figured that, you know, uh, in case of India also, we are looking at so many of these problems right now. And it is nothing new. I mean, all major civilizations and countries uh, have faced similar sort of issues or, and, and, and countries and civilizations which have been able to overcome that, they have continued to sort of uh, you know, march forward on their on their growth and prosperity um, journey. And that's what I thought, that, you know, urbanization, there are just way too many issues for us to ignore or to even think that, you know, um, time will resolve for certain things. I mean, in my book, I've taken the liberty to even say, recommend that, you know, there are a few problems which will get solved uh, with time and with growing per capita income. But urbanization as a whole cannot, cannot be looked at like that. There are some key fundamental problems all across us and and that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, you know, our productivity frontier is definitely not going to go up. It's probably going to decline. Yeah, and I mean, your explanation is like perfectly sensible and logical. But while you were saying, I was thinking of something else, which is that historically, cities also, they decay and they grow and there are dynamic cities and there are cities that are kind of past their peak. And as cities start to decay, people move to new cities and new cities become dynamic, right? So in that sense, why is the binding constraint on urbanization a problem, right? So, I mean, for example, if Delhi does not remain dynamic, would the populace move to Noida or Greater Noida or Gurgaon, right? Right. So I, I so the book doesn't aims to sort of 
uh, resuscitate, revive, or maintain the status quo on a few particular cities. It is largely you look at the phenomena which is urbanization and which goes beyond the success of a few cities, right? I mean, even Constantinople sort of declined for a bit there. So did Baghdad and, and, and so did the Harappan uh, cities of Dolavira and so on. And even the Magad Empire cities, uh, Vijayanagar sort of crumbled, right? Uh, in South. And then you can look at, you know, Italian city states and there's a bunch in, in Europe as well that you can t- talk of, right? So it is, so it's not, the book is not the study of a few cities and how to sort of maintain the status quo or revive them. It is about the larger phenomena of a political economy phenomena of urbanization and what comes with it and what forces does it unleash and to sort of unpack that phenomena to largely understand that while the, the you know, uh, uh, economic growth is very fickle and so is labor movement and so is wages, right? And it would move according to the laws of economics and, you know, it's very fickle. It doesn't stick to uh, one geography or one investor or one, you know, country if, if they do not do well. So in that case, I mean, if it moves to greater order, it's fine. But at some point, greater order will face those issues that Delhi is facing now, right? And the issues that greater order is facing is very different from the issues that Delhi is facing. But the problem of sort of maintaining the economic growth remains the same. So for instance, in Delhi, the forces of, say, traffic and and, and unaffordable rents and unaffordable property prices, uh, some problem with infrastructure is there. Of course, it's better than a lot more cities, but it is certainly there. Then the problem of flooding is there and so on and so forth. I can go on and on about it, that, right? But similarly, there are problems with grid and order, which is about you know, how close it is to the labor market, to the job market, or is it actually providing agglomeration forces? Or can you really do innovation in greater and order? Or is safety really an issue? Because I hear a lot of episodes about interpersonal violence uh, in, in greater and order, right? So these are forces, they're different congestion forces, but they're all playing out in different cities. And we need to manage that. So it's not about a few cities. It's about maintaining, sort of leveraging urbanization, which has which comes to every civilization and country at a certain kind of time. It is very important to leverage that because no country or civilization has grown without fair bit of industrialization and urbanization uh, put together. I think those are actually two legs on which um, uh, long-term economic growth sort of sustains because these two forces, industrialization and urbanization, within themselves pack pretty much everything that is to be known about economic policy or socioeconomic and political economy transformation, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the stakes are higher when you live in a much more globalized economy because capital mobility and labor mobility means that it might not shift to greater Nada, it might shift to another country entirely. And then you lose out on that opportunity on a permanent basis. It's not that you can uh, try a new experiment in a new Indian city and start from scratch. You've, you've basically lost that opportunity for good. For instance, like industrialization and urbanization, they're a means to the end of you know economic growth. And similarly, economic growth is also an end to sort of socioeconomic uh, slash political economy transformation as well, right? Where you're looking much more at social justice, inclusivity, sustainability, and, and so on and so forth, right? The other, uh, not the other, but the real sort of noble pursuits and economic growth sort of feeds into that, right? So if you miss the bus on urbanization, right, and if it goes elsewhere, so the forces that it would have unleashed otherwise, you would have also missed that. The transformation that might have come with it, you would have missed that. And, and that's a problem uh, that would be very difficult to eradicate. Yeah, and this takes us back to one of the themes that you start off or that you put in the initial portion of your book, which is about some ideas or themes that are very specific to India's urbanization and things that people, not just in India, but around the world should be paying attention to. So can you 
talk us through some of those yeah so uh, essentially uh, you know if you look at i mean i so i to write this book i had to study a lot of history to see you know what really changes in a city when you know cities decline and why they go up and of course they were intertwined with the economic process and industrialization and so on and and but you also see that they unleash different kind of forces as i said about you know political economy slash socioeconomic and and for different countries it has been very different right uh, for for europe it was different for americas it was different especially north america then for east asia it was different for china it has been different and in, in case of india we'll see we're we seeing those those forces sort of playing out and i've highlighted those seven forces and I, it's it's the word of chess thumping it is something that has to happen if indian cities continue to grow and and we continue to leverage urbanization i mean it's it's the word of jingoism so one is that you know uh, the that indian cities will be at the center of global value chain which is fairly logical uh, but i sort of sort of unpack that why it would be the case that you know all the global ceos and 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 you know global companies uh, and and key market investors will sort of look at the indian consumer not even coming from tier 1 city but say a tier 3 tier 4 city and think about oh how how i'm going to live in that person right because india continues to grow it's a, the purchasing power is growing and it's a huge huge market right so everyone is trying to tap into that so one is that the other is uh, about international labor movement because labor movement doesn't really happen from rural areas to international cities it's largely happen from the cities indian cities to uh, global cities right and india is perhaps the only country which provides such a vast pool of uh workforce which speaks english and is strained in stem and and um, has largely been been a, been a very constructive and you know very uh, uh positive and net contributor sort of diaspora as compared to a lot of other countries which have been either shy or inward looking or have had certain legacy problem problems right uh, so in that regard india has been doing well on that part the third i would pick up is the emancipation from the whole uh caste and gender issues because you know those these are the two structures which are largely rural uh you know set in the rural uh, construct and in and in cities essentially what matters is what you can do how well you can do and at what wage can you do essentially and that settles the conversation and that's why the economic identity sort of precedes the other identities it's not to say that you have to shun the other identities you can embrace as and when you go but it will, you will not be identified and and distress that oh you are this person from this community or oh you are a woman and that's why you will be disadvantaged essentially so what matters is how good of a how good of a work resource i am to companies and to the city and and what wage can i get for that right and similarly there are there something i've mentioned about how innovation like you know uh, the number of unicorns india is creating and the and the iprs and and the patents that we're filing is is crazy right and and that talks about innovation and how sort of when you when you reach a certain sort of a size of economy at the city level how the innovation sort of gets spurred and then it's a force that you do not have to do much you have to just ensure that there are no major congestion forces and they will continue to sort of grow similarly i've talked about the sustainability it is very counterintuitive because 80% of the emission comes from cities but it is only in the cities we will find solutions to this problem right just like hydrogen fuel or ev vehicles and 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 uh, the uh, energy saving companies uh, the whole concept of energy efficiency and resource efficiency is something that has been championed in cities and it is cities that can sort of you know uh, continue to innovate and find much more resource efficient way to sort of go about environment uh, sustainability and and sort of controlling the emissions and i think the last part was about the whole conserv- uh, the, the contest between liberalism and conservatism essentially which is like how the us cities coastal cities were very different from the midwest and it's you know it tells you a lot about the political structure and that's why i sort of unpack what's happening in indian cities in when it comes to social and economic liberalism and social and economic conservatism 
and what the voters are sort of prioritizing right now and, you know, what will be the hierarchy in the coming decades as, as cities continue to grow. Yeah, and just to clarify, these are not all problems that people need to solve. These are all features that are in some ways unique to Indian cities and that we need to be paying attention to. Yeah, these are not problems. These are these are the major trends. I mean, I can think of 20 others, but I, I could see them sort of being subsumed in one of the other sections, right? Like, for instance, there's also a section on the SDGs, like the SDG, the deadline is 2030, right? But how the Indian cities deliver on SDGs will define the fate of SDGs. And I'm not even overstating. It's purely because of the tyranny of numbers that we have on our side, uh, right? The, the demographic dividend or a disaster, however you want to sort of put it. But these are features. These are not problems, but these are features. These are transformations. These are global political economy trends which are unfolding. And this chapter, the second chapter is largely written for the global audience that, you know, uh, well, the China talk is great. I'm sure. I mean, we have this lot to learn, but as predicted, they have sort of a hit uh, run into a wall and, and it seems difficult that they'll be able to climb over that wall in terms of economic growth and, and, you know, solve for the host issues that China is facing. But the next frontier market, then large market becomes India. And, and what's happening here is important for people globally because whether we like it or not, uh, what is happening in India will be felt on the other side of the world. And it's the case, as we are seeing, unfortunately, with Canada. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's going to happen. It, it's happened in Singapore. It's happened, it happens in East Asia. It's, it's, happen, it's happening in European cities. It's happening in Americas. Uh, the UNGA is, uh, is ongoing, right? And, and all those, what's happening in these cities is actually playing out. And I mean, G20 was a classic example of what happened. And, and how they were sort of, sort of, uh, you know, setting up and taking notice of the trends that are playing out in front of us. And it's largely for the global audience, which seems clearly a little too obsessed with, uh, with China and seems to take the India factor with a bit of complacency. I mean, the awareness level has not hit them yet. Uh, and I think that's why, and that, that's where this second chapter is targeted. Yeah, you definitely speak to a lot of themes that are more forward-looking at that we should start observing even now because I think it's a problem that we haven't started paying attention to them adequately. And sometimes we overemphasize some problems or features at the cost of the others. Like, this is, this, but this is not, uh, I, I mean, yes, I agree to that diagnosis and that's why the book was written. But at the same time, I also think that all the policy making in India is largely done in the wake of crisis. Uh, and, and, and I told my friend that, you know, if one were to write a book on Indian economic policy, it should be called, uh, when push comes to shove, essentially when, when there's a crisis, then only things happen. So it's fine. That's our style. We have pretty much perfected it. Uh, it shouldn't be the, uh, ideally, but we are just too much, uh, having worked in the government for five years, I can, uh, and then being work, worked in the rural areas, I can assure you that so many issues that we're facing on every day basis. Uh, the, the government stakeholders cannot keep up, the common citizens are not able to keep up. But I think that the realization is now dawning upon us. Like, you know, so we're just talking about with the whole women quota thing, we're talking about delimitation, right? And how that will, that end up, might end up penalizing the southern states. It will end up penalizing further the urban constituents. And really why? Because the southern states are largely urban, where the states which have, you know, where the fertility rate has not gone down. Uh, or at least have not been on par with the replacement rate, which are the, you know, UP Bihar, I come from UP, so, uh, you know, no dig at that. I mean, 
right? So, uh, but the problem is that they might, might end up getting more, more seats and they're largely rural, right? But the problem is that the India's federal budget and state level budget is largely anyway focused towards rural political economy. And that's the reason that we sort of understate our figures on the on urbanization. Because everyone wants to get uh, the pie of the money, which is for the rural political economy, right? And now this will further slant the budget. And, and the people who are in the urban constituency who are generating the growth and doing the innovation and so on will not be able, you know, given as much representation as their rural counterparts. So again, we're talking about delimitation. Well, here it goes. The uh, urbanization factor plays right into that. So anything and everything you sort of study now is related to uh, urbanization in India. I mean, in some ways it is, and it's just like what America's was from 1850s to 1930, 1940. Of course, after that, but primarily during that period of a Europe from 750 to um, to 1900s, right? That's when the, the urbanization sort of experiment happened. Similarly for China from, from 1880s to until now and probably for two decades down the road. Uh, these changes are happening as, as fast as we speak and pretty much all the issues are largely urban issues. Right. I mean, even, even for the women quota, right? So the point where we started was woman quota and woman quota is also um, largely uh, plays into the whole idea of creating women friendly cities i mean it shouldn't be a separate pursuit ideally all you know cities should just be friendly to women and all genders uh, largely but well in india's case and a lot of cases of a few other countries you have to sort of mention it rwanda and now what india is trying to do in terms of creating a reservation uh, for women in in legislators uh, legislature that that would create a whole sort of a different uh, women-friendly cities. So you know, it's just everything just ties with the organization and plays right up that alley. Absolutely. So let's get down to some of the actual details of the challenges that you've discussed, and you've discussed plenty of them, and you've put in a lot of eye-popping numbers about the scale of the challenges. So why don't you? Take us through some of the infrastructure issues, the utility-related issues in Indian cities. Right. So when it comes to infrastructure, I, I I want to point out the larger theme about infrastructure one should understand is that there's a social contract, right? Just just like we talk about the Thuro's social contract between the Leviathan state and the common citizens. Similarly, there's a social contract between the uh, citizens of a city and 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 the governor the, and the government, city government, right? In terms of okay, I'll do the innovation, I'll I'll provide the jobs, I'll 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 get better wages, and I'll continue to innovate and so on. That is something that the citizens promise, right? And the governments have to promise in terms of good urban infrastructure so that the congestion forces go down, right? And and in that regard, there are a few factors that one should look at because when we talk about urban urban infrastructure, we largely talk about either metros or or expressways and so on. But I've talked of unsexy infrastructure, so to speak, because that is essentially what we need uh, for our everyday life, whether it's drinking water or whether it's about the, the quality of groundwater resources and so on and so forth. Right. So there are three uh, sort of infrastructure that I've focused on. First is water and sanitation, uh, where the pursuit essentially is to provide 24-7 piped water supply to households uh, for residential purposes. Similarly, for industrial purposes, we should have uh, continued water supply. There should be limit, limited cross subsidy, and and you know there are certain issues which are the legacy issues of Indian infrastructure sector, which is non-revenue sort of you don't know uh, provision of water. There's poor quality, there's leakage, there's poor governance. The resources are depleted. There are certain problems with legislation, so we have to resolve for all those issues. 
Similarly, then we move on to the sanitation part within the water sanitation part, which, which talks about, okay, we've created Swachh Bharat Mission Cities and it is largely uh, ODF, but what has happened to that waste, the fecal sludge, right? So in terms of creating that sewage and sewage network first, second, about having those fecal t- treatment plants and just having the larger uh, national and state level and city level understanding of what is fecal sludge management and why it is important and why have you know, in ODF plus plus, are we focusing more on that? But at the ODF stage, we were just focusing on the first part of the value chain, right? So that that is different part of the infrastructure. The second part I focus is upon the solid waste management. So if you look at the water sanitation part, it is much more about it resource, you know, pumping resources like pumping money, pumping people, creating that sort of huge cadre of people who can create resources for twenty four seven sort of uh, awards and. Uh, resources in Indian cities. The second is about solid waste management, which is not very really that resource efficient, uh, resource uh, intensive. What you largely need is to have a supply chain figured out for the whole of city, like Indore has figured out, like Surat has figured out, Ahmedabad has figured out, a few cities in East India have figured out, right? So in terms of solid waste management, you have to figure out the whole value chain, and then you have to get more and more household and industries to sort of comply with it and then you have a certain success right like so for instance people after covid they were like oh what's going to happen to uh, the biomedical waste right when I, my my contention to that was you do not have to worry about it essentially because once that you have created that value chain so if it's any kind of solid waste you can sort of get rid of it through that right so far as you know what are the points from where i'm collecting waste how i'm transporting them how i'm treating them how i'm disposing of them and i'm sort of recycling and using part of that waste essentially so it's a part of figuring out the value chain. It's a different kind of problem that you're looking at. And the third is about housing, right? Uh, traditionally, we have largely sort of emphasized of ownership over excess. And that's why, I mean, the rental housing market was what? Uh, 54% in, in 61, uh, 1961. Uh, and, and it has reduced to like 30, 31% by, by 2011 census, right? And and that's a problem because it tells you that, you know, there are a bunch of legislations that we had passed in the, uh, you know, uh, in, in in previous decades, which have created a bunch of legacy problems where we continue to focus on ownership rather than excess. And and it creates a bunch of problems because, you know, you do not have dormitory housing, you do not have hostels for working women, you do not have enough hostels for students. I mean, unlike Europe, right? You have hostels all around. Uh, similarly, what is the role of urban land in that? Because the rental yield in India is incredibly low at 2-3%. 3% would be a great rental yield. But in large cities, the rental yield is two percent, right? So that's a problem because then it creates it. Because if you look at this amount of um, your monthly income, the multiple of monthly income that you have to get rid of to buy a property in India is way more than the than other uh, cities, and it it tells you a lot about how we are using urban land, right? And how we should be using that. So that is that problem, and and then you have to create a whole bunch of you know solutions across the value chain in terms of housing because. Depending upon what numbers you're seeing, the shortage is anywhere from between 18 million to 50 million, right? And it's a it's a mind-boggling number because you when you go around on outskirts of Delhi, you see uh, thousands of you know vacant housing. So it's a different kind of housing shortage that we're facing. 99% is from the low-income group and the economically weaker sections, which is largely about congestion. Where if you build one or two extra rooms, the problem will be resolved. Right, largely, or they need certain bit of refurbishment and so on. But largely, because of the land prices, uh, the affordable housing or the hostel uh, or slash dormitory housing has not been uh, tapped into as much by the private sector, and that needs to be resolved because then 
the the supply and de- demand mismatch would sort of get resolved. So there are three different kind of infrastructure categories that I have talked about, but the first principles and all three are very different. But they all three need to be addressed because technically, if you go into a city, if, if right now I ask you to okay, you're moving to DC right now, and you know, but these are the issues that you will talk about. You will not be talking about metros and expressways. Public transport is a different construct, but urban infrastructure largely refers to when you get get up and when you go back to bed. What is the immediate infrastructure that you need, essentially? And the problem is that we do not talk about this infrastructure. We either think it's it's relegated to Nagar Nigam or Jal Nigam, and it's too complicated. It is very engineering focused, and so on. It is, but it is also the bunch of policy issues, and that's where the maximum money is also made uh, through corruption, also. So, so that's the whole spiel on on urban infrastructure. The challenge is humongous, but but the municipal bonds are sort of getting the uh, the market discipline. In, in these sectors, uh, Pune, Lucknow, these are the cities who have started experimenting with that. And and uh, Swaj Bharat Mission was a great success. There's now people treatment plans that are being built. And I think uh, a biggest problem, now Jal Shakti Ministry is sort of looking at the 24-7 piped water supply. We'll have to see how far that goes in terms of, you know, replicating it across all Indian towns. And uh, and rental housing is something that, you know, is, is a much more difficult complex because that's also your area of study, right? Uh, urban land or other land in general, right? And it's a much more uh, complex issue than anything else. So that will take its own sweet time. Let's uh, stick to that subject while we are at it, the rental land issue. Uh, like you said, it's an area of study for me. So let's talk about that a little bit more. And one of the interesting things that I learned from just talking to people who invest in real estate is that uh, you're right that uh, the yields are around 2 to 3%. But then you, if, if you account for taxes, the yield in some cases is actually negative or it's or it's closer to 0.5 to 1%, which is uh, which is mind-boggling compared to the relative yield on on a property, right? Because if you look at the amount of appreciation that housing or that real estate goes through in all major Indian cities, uh, a yield of 2 to 3% is just unbelievably low. So in your opinion, what are some of the bottlenecks here? Is it basically all about like some people talk about rent control laws. Is it basically a question of laws that are biased in favor of, uh, you know, renters and therefore landlords don't want to rent? Or is there something else going on? Is rental housing just not economically viable due to locational issues or due to tax issues and so on? Right. No, so I, I would not go for a simplistic solution because I tell you, land traditionally has been the asset that has, you know, for, I mean, since advent of agriculture, right, 10,000 BC to now, it has one asset that has not gone through a major change. Even currency has gone through a major change right now, as you speak, right, the crypto and so on. And it is one asset that has not undergone major change. And I think the other asset that has not undergone as much change is higher education. But, okay, the nature of it has changed in terms of what you can pursue as higher education, but land largely has not changed, Right. And, and it's a very, very complex topic. And, and that's why I want to unpack a few things, right? Prasanna Monti, I've cited him very liberally. He has done some amazing work on urban land, urban transport, urban economics, and so on. He, he tells something unique about what is different about urban land. And I want to highlight a few things. That, you know, in urban land, every pulsar is unique as compared to the rural land, right? Second, while the quantity is, is, is uh, finite, the supply is not because you can go vertical housing, right? 
Third is that uh, development is not a private right because, you know, it, it leads to other sort of external, externalities there. And, and there's, of course, an environment definition of it. And the other part is that you can use land for financing, right? And so, and there's a whole horizontal and vertical element of land. And, but what we have done is because the rural political economy weighs on our mind so much, and so does our, uh, you know, uh, city planning, um, uh, urban planning uh, is so slanted towards rural political economy, or at least not slanted by that, but sort of overwhelmed by it, that we sort of, we have taken a very simplistic view of urban land, where we are afraid to increase FSI, where the rent control acts have been have been biased against uh, the, the 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 landlords, where we sort of looked at at one point we we looked at Ulkara, right, which sort of minimized the, the amount of land that can be there with you, uh, yeah, the, the land ceiling, right, and 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 then we also our our uh, our, our public sector enterprises are sitting then on thousands and lakhs of hectares of land, and we are not utilizing them. We are not asking them to sort of disclose them. They all need to disclose. If you're if you're not disclosing the amount of land that you have that is being utilized, that is unutilized, that is underutilized, that is encroached upon, that has been abandoned, uh, then you, they should be penalized. I think they should all be mandated from from our armed forces to uh, to railways to to state and public enterprises, from banks, Air India's, you know, all, all those enterprises. They should disclose it. Right. Third is about. That how we look at, um, you know, FSI, that we are just so worried about increasing FSI. We just think of FSI that, oh, if you just increase the FSI, everyone will move in. It's not really the case, right? People will move in if you have the right kind of infrastructure and you increase FSI in a, in a, in an informed transit oriented development manner where, you know, you increase it around largely around the, tra- the transport nodes and you sort of provide infrastructure and then you build, go on from there on. Singapore and Hong Kong are a great, great study. I'm not saying that all of India has to be Singapore, Hong Kong. But at least you can look at 10, 15 cities if they are growing in that regard, right? So one is that. The other purpose is about recycling land. We just seem to be get stuck. Okay, here a residential property is being built for three generations or four generations is going to be like that. It is only recently that you start seeing in cities like Lucknow and Kanpur that they have started recycling land. The purpose, the land use purpose is is getting changed now, which is, you know, the, the turnaround time is, is sooner. And you can literally utilize that land for, you know, uh, all sorts of purposes. The textile mills of Kanpur are continue to be abandoned, whereas the textile mills of Mumbai are converted into fashion houses, right? And, you know, the, so you maintain the outer sort of facade, which plays into the role of urban design and, you know, where the cities are aesthetically pleasing and the core character of the city remains. But internally, you can create a whole bunch of things. Similarly, if you go to this uh, part of Beijing called 798 district, it was a factory to create... Uh, rifles and bullets and, and some ammunition for the for the communist party right but now it houses fashion houses and cafes and you know uh gourmet restaurants michelin star restaurants and so on and so forth right so you can you can be very creative in sort of recycling land so that sort of unlocks that value and i think one of the bigger issues that we have at hand on terms of urban land is the number of court cases uh that that ensure that you know that land is not utilized it is easier said than done to increase the fsi and you know recycle land and and you know rent control act and so on but the problem is that the that the that we have presumptive land tackling in india rather than conclusive and that creates a lot of host of uh, legal issues around it which which delays the whole process of redeveloping the land or redeveloping the asset uh, on, on that land and that creates a longer gestation period the costs go up and similarly the prices of land go up and 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 the deals uh, go down around that and so on and so forth right so vertically also no you're not going up you're afraid to do that horizontally 
you're stuck in legal issues and and whatever you little you have you are showing little to no creative thinking in terms of how to leverage it so i think that's a, largely the summary of i would have put on on urban land but you are the authority why didn't you speak for a couple of minutes anirudh and then tell me uh, what's your view on what's stopping urban land no i think you're bang on on many of these issues and uh, just as a aside i did have a chance to visit the 798 district in beijing about 10 years ago and so wonderful place i i hope we see something similar in one of our cities soon i think you're right that there is a larger failure of rethinking about how do we do vertical construction in cities how do we recycle or redevelop areas for sure and the question as i read your book was is this really about a failure of imagination because a lot of these things have been tried in so many places in so many cities and have been successful in too many geographies to be still discussed and debated right so the question is is this about not having the right solutions or not having the political will or is this about uh vested interests or political interests who do not want the redevelopment and so on is it about homeowners or property owners who don't want either the value of their property to change or the character of their neighborhood to change right so is it a problem of policy making or is it a problem of basically being able to overcome the people who who are opposing some of these developments and this was also uh, it came into my mind when i was reading parts of your book where you were giving interesting examples from around the city and i was thinking yes in some cities like indore you've been able to demonstrate a best practice in waste management so why isn't another city being able to replicate it what is holding them back is it just about the personalities or is it about uh a failure to implement an idea due to some other financial constraint or due to political challenges so these were some of the questions that were coming into my mind no i think I, this is this is I, i'm sorry to sort of butt in but this is a very interesting question right and and on urban land i largely defer to your understanding that it is a classic case of vested political economy interest because land is at the center of it it would be very difficult to resolve but india in the past has shown that you know the will and way to undertake land reforms right so i think it's not beyond their reach but at the same time i think as more and more people sort of get the, the financialization of india's saving and indian sort of understanding of savings and investment will reduce the dependence on the land as the primary instrument and that emotional detachment which sort of uh help undercut what you said is vested political economy interest uh, i don't know if it's a correct there's a fair bit of punditry that i'm doing right now but it is my assumption that that might play out the continued financialization financialization of savings would lead to that part right so that is my understanding uh on terms of where certain cities are able to do it and why they are not i think the indian subcontinent is just extremely the political economy of the whole indian subcontinent and for the fun of it if i can say and bar uh, you know the, the is 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 just overburdened by the cult of personalities uh, and it has been because largely we've been under empires and kings and monarchs and so on for the longest period of time and now also if you see 
and I'm not referring to the national government and so on. I'm largely referring to the state governments which have deprived cities of the functions being devolved and they're being empowered under the 74th Amendment and the 12th Schedule and so on and so forth, right? So you're still dependent on the chief minister and a rock star sort of a bureaucrat that would come to your... Uh, uh, development authority or your smart city project who will be heading it and you know depending upon the charisma and the the will of that particular person the things will change in that so that's why and 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 citizens are you know their hands are tied they don't know whom to reach out there is no mayor there is no direct sort of influence to uh, the principle of subsidiarity sort of def- it gets defeated in Indian cities right the, you don't know whom to reach out and who will provide the services you just get bogged down by the details and the forms and running around right and and that is why some cities succeed, some do not, because we are currently dependent not on the larger upliftment of the discourse of the common population or having a municipal carder, carder or uh, sort of empowered and trained and, you know, weather beaten uh, uh, urban local bodies across India. We are dependent upon the cults or personalities of certain bureaucrats in either smart cities or development authorities or at the state bureaucracy level or in certain departments or state chief ministers, essentially. And, or maybe some uh, member of parliaments. Uh, so that's why there's a heavy dependence on certain kind of things, right? There's certain legacy factors that, of course, play into that in terms of what kind of industries are there, what kind of educational institutes have been there. Uh, Indore has been at the, you know, it has been at the center of, 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 of a certain empire for several centuries now and it has done well. It has been in the center of attention of those, of, of that particular empire, uh, for several centuries. And, and it had, it has certain kind of educational institutes that provide a certain kind of good breeding ground for, uh, uh, an active citizenship. But so does Bangalore. But why is Bangalore infrastructure so poor, right? And but so does a lot of other cities. I mean, Lucknow is not deprived of such cities, of such or rather such institutes. But why is uh, solid waste management not up to mark in Lucknow? So again, I would defer to the uh, issue of the cult of personalities, uh, essentially, and that's why we need uh, much more urban uh, devolution and, and 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 sort of empowerment under the seventy fourth amendment. I hope sort of it answers. There's a fair bit of punditry, I know, but I hope it answers your questions. Yeah, in some sense, you're basically saying that we are currently dependent on individuals because there is some kind of a institutional or structural problem in how we govern our cities in at least two ways. One is that if these rockstar individuals, as you refer to them, if they're not there, there is a lot of inertia in terms of ideas and the will to do things differently or to try out new things. And the other is that by default, the governance institutions themselves are not really geared to experiment or to try new things or to cope with the changes that are occurring in their cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be a good summary of what what I was trying to say. Indeed. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, I mean, you do place the eventual blame of a lot of these problems on the way our governance works in towards the end of the book. So, I mean, talk, talk to me a little bit about that. I would not say it's an eventual blame. I would say the ultimate blame, the only blame lies in urban governance. And, and it was a cross-cutting theme. And at some point, uh, urban governance was a cross-cutting theme, just like sustainability and the gender angle and the economic growth angle and urban design. And angle in the book, I've sort of 
I kept referring to it again and again. I realized that, you know, you, I can't do this. It has to be a separate section where I need to unpack those things because these things are very, very, very problematic, right? In 74th Amendment, Metropolitan Planning Committee was sort of envisaged for, right? And Ishwar Aluwalia was the biggest critique of this that, you know, wherever it existed, it existed on paper. There was nothing that happening on and sort of metropolitan governance. We are not looking at, you know, um, NCR from Greater Noida up to Faridabad and, you know, uh, and to other districts on the other sides. I've premiered it, in fact, now uh, that, you know, how we are sort of looking at just thinking about it as a largely a labor market and sort of sort of resolving for issues. We're just too fraught into who's doing what and who will get the power for what. And it's, it's unfortunate that we're still having that dialogue. Uh, the second is um, the whole question of mayors, right? We do not, uh, we do not have mayors. Uh, we got Sardar Patel, we got Nehru, we got Bose because they were they were mayors. It also is a good breeding ground for national leaders, where you know they, they test their frame in terms of their appetite to govern, and if they have that sort of will and 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 and, and uh, appetite to govern properly. Not only that, but also there's no... So a mayor is who would be the executive head of a city, right? Just like chief ministers for, for, for states and prime minister for the country. And and you do not have that. So who do you go and blame that, you know, this is not happening, this is not functioning, right? And so on. Even if where the mayors exist, they do not have real powers. The richer the city, the weaker the mayor is, the, the, the lower their tenure is, uh, they're largely just like nominal head they exist. They're neither coterminous with the councillors. They do not have any executive power. They do not have any say over the uh, parastatal agencies. This is just problematic, right? The whole mayor thing. And it's something that needs to be properly addressed. And I mean, even China sort of achieved a lot of success on, on urbanization and monetizing urban land because their mayors are really empowered. And so is in the US, so is in the Europe. So this is something that we have to do at some point or the other time. But it has to happen, like the mayor thing. The second is about the 74th Amendment which talks about the 12th schedule and the 18 functions on it, under it that will be devolved to the city government. Of course, there's no city government. The devolution has been only to like a couple of functions, uh, studies done by Janagra and, and Praja uh, Foundation, I guess. Uh, they have done the survey, uh, both of them, and, and they're finding that like only few functions have been devolved across different cities. And again, the richer the city, the less is the devolution. Because of course, the vested interest will get more, much more sort of you know um, money out of uh, not devolving. And then in those, even in those 18 schedules, then there are a bunch of uh, things which are very outdated in terms of how would you take care of your cattle and so on and the tanneries, which were a thing that you would envisage in 93, 94 when this was passed, this legislation. But now the urban governance has changed. It has to be a lot about urban health. It's about pedestrianizing. It's about, uh, it's about uh, air pollution. It's about, you know, dust control and uh, yeah, a bunch of other issues. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm so alarmed by a lot of national policymakers and, and certain state uh, policymakers who in private told me that, you know, maybe India will never have that 74th Amendment fulfilled because, you know, there's sort of political economy interest involved. And that sort of really alarmed me because if we do not do that, urbanization will continue to remain a binding constraint. We need to devolve. That is, I mean, we cannot, it cannot happen any other way. Now, when that happens, uh, my, my, my contest to that is, it's just not only we have to devolve those 18 functions. I argue in the book that we should go from 18 to 14 functions. Like from, because at 18 level, you only devolve four or five functions. If you ask for 40, then probably they will give us 20, 25 functions being devolved. And I tell you the next hero or the heroine or the, 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 the rock star of Indian policymaking will not be the next prime minister or the current prime minister or whosoever. It will be the chief minister who would bite the bullet and undertake the 74th amendment in, in that, in their state. She or he will not get reelected. I can assure you because a lot of people will not 
earn as much money as they can right now, right? Without devolution. But that person will create a, a, a movement, a, a tsunami, which will be sort of asked by, by other states, like the people in other states, and it will not stop at anything. That's the thing about Indian policy making. You know, you, if you go on a certain path, path, there's a certain kind of path dependency that you cannot come back from. But who will be the first one to bite the bullet is something to be seen. Uh, there are some certain promising sort of starts here and there, but they're very few. Uh, so that's that. And largely, so I will stick to like three problem areas. I've told you about the mayor thing. I've told you about the 74 department. The bunch of other issues about property taxes, municipal carder, and so on and so forth. I will not go there. The, the, the other issue that I will pick is how we define what is urban. India has one of the most stringent definition of what is defined as urban, right? The census uses a mix of three criteria to say that, oh, this 2011 data uh, census that, you know, we're 31% urban. Whereas statutory towns, they say, uh, as per this, uh, statutory towns are the towns which are defined by states that they are urban. And uh, because, again, of the whole money that goes to the rural political economy, they want to be defined as largely as rural. So statutory towns, they have, uh, that's the urbanization by 2011 was like 25%, right? So that 5, 26%. So that 5% gap in 2011, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, was was close to 12 Singapore, 60, 60 million people, right? As for a 1.2 billion people, right? Back then. And now that's a problem that, you know, as much of that area is like ungoverned or rather misgoverned, first of all. Second, if you are mis- misclassifying areas from uh, urban to rural, you are not giving that, that kind of infrastructure to those uh, areas. And again, the innovation and so on and the width of the road, the kind of infrastructure that should be there, right? That is not there. Rural areas also do not want to be identified as urban areas because then, they, of course, they will lose money from the schemes, but they will also have to pay property taxes. So that's another problem that we are facing there. Uh, another issue that we face in terms of this is that largely countries use one or two indicators to sort of define what is urban. India uses, for the census, three criteria, and the states use a mix of six or eight criteria in a different way, in different ways. Right? So I think it makes sense that if the next, when the next census, I shouldn't say if, but when the next, next census is done, uh, you know, they should, they can continue to have a similar definition of the three criteria, but they should also create two or three parallel definitions. That if you just take this criteria, we are this much urban. If you just take this criteria, we are this much urban. That would impress upon people and the constituents and the, and the legislature and the bureaucracy that, oh, we are this much urban, we need to work towards that. We are sort of because of some whatever reasons. But we need to have that, that definition which we used in previous decades to sort of have a certain continuity. And we can see what's the break. Right. And have a parallel exercise done by census and say, okay, boss, if you do this, then we are this much urban, right? So IDFC, which is now the Global, has done a lot of research on that. And if they, if they use the criteria used by Ghana and, and uh, Qatar, we are 47% urban as per the 2011 census. And if you use the criteria used by Mexico and Venezuela, which is a threshold of 2,500 people, we would be 65% urban. Again, that was 12 years ago. So imagine how much urban we already are. And if we are, then we are not providing the right infrastructure. No, we are not raising the revenues like that. We are not using the land vertically like that as we should be. We are not creating the right kind of governance. We are not giving the right kind of jobs. Uh, people are not following the right kind of sort of rules. And, and, and that's why the whole quality of life, wage, innovation, economic growth all comes crashing down. So again, urban governance is a thing, right? And I can go into my many more issues on urban governance, but I'll stick to these three because, you know, um, I don't want to be certain sort of and no attention being uh, spread out across too many issues. But these three are key. Okay, of course, if you want to talk about property tax, you can talk about that, or lack of principal card and how understaffed they are, and the whole rule of data and tech in city governance. 
uh, will play a role. So these are these are some of the uh, other issues in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're bang on, and I couldn't agree more. I think the issue or the point that you raised about this uh, governance of small cities and planning in small cities is especially important because, yes, our large cities are sometimes the size of small states or even small countries, and they are complicated. There are multifaceted issues, but at least for the smaller cities, there is a real problem that if you don't lay down the infrastructure right now, and if you don't have at least a very high level of planning implemented in them once those cities grow and develop you can't undo that and it's going to be prohibitively both financially and politically expensive to start planning once those cities are you know already developed and grown and that means you really need to get ahead of the game and think about how you're going to take care of urbanization for small cities differently compared to the kinds of urban challenges in the large cities I will also say that you know, of course, I said that the next star of policy making will be the chief minister who does the devolution, but I and also sort of has an in place mayoral system uh, that it does, or a certain kind of you know national leader who really goes for the kill, like the jugular that no, we will do this, we will have the model act, and wherever our governments exist, we will adopt it. Right, that will be a tsunami of reforms, like right, and it will change face of India like nothing else. Uh, so that's that. But at the same time, I think what, because a lot of your listeners are players from the private sector. And I think private sector in India is fast gaining currency in terms of providing a feedback loop on the reforms. It started with somewhere in 80s. And now we're sort of at a, some form of crescendo where the feedback loop from the private sector really plays a role in policy making. Someone has worked in Niti Aayog and abuse, I relied on their inputs a lot of times. And, and I urge the private sector, perhaps through your channel, is that, you know, the ease of doing business will primarily come from devolution. They don't need to go to single window clearance to the national government or to the state government. That's just plain stupid. Uh, they should not be. The The real ease of doing business would be that if you go to a municipality, you know this is the mayor, that mayor needs to win the next election. Uh, she or he will fight tooth and nail to get investments, to get jobs into their uh, city. They will go all over the world to invite investments, to monetize their urban land, to create proper urban infrastructure. And they will uh, work very closely with the private sector and say, okay, boss, you are a market investor. You are coming to this. Okay, what do you need? Oh, you, you are uh, you're, you're Apple. You're, you, you are you know, Meta. You're trying to create a data center here, right? Uh, what, what all do you need from me? And this is, okay, you get it from one sign off on the mail, you get it. That's the real ease of doing business. You do not need to go to state uh, bunch of offices or at the national level. So private sector needs to. I would I would urge through our channel that private sector should increase the tempo on asking for devolution and for expansion of the twelfth uh, study. It from eighteen eighteen function eighteen function is just way too less. And if you look at urban health and uh, like how urban planning should be, how we should look at child friendly cities, air pollution, um, the law and order. I mean, the water sanitation, the infrastructure issues, I think it should be close to 25, 30 functions, 40 functions. Now, there's a lot of food for thought in what you're saying. Uh, I think we need to wrap up soon, but I'll ask you one question based on a topic that you covered in this book that is usually not covered in books on cities and urbanization, which is about how you actually bring up children in a city. And... I want to ask you, A, why did you think of this as something that you wanted to include 
in the book because it's a it's a very interesting part of the book and also what are the main issues that you wanted to bring up right about the child friendly cities right yeah i mean because we keep talking about demographic burden and so on and when you have 120 million children in urban areas which is as per the government figures of course you have much more probably close to 220 240 million children uh, in urban areas it's a, and you're not talking about you're t- talking about you know gender friendly women friendly cities it's a, it's it's a blind spot and again so someone asked me someone very very senior devshish what's your thesis of the book i said the the title of the book is the thesis in india's blind spot like it's you know i cannot be more clear so that's why i would say that it's a commentary on the indian political economy because we are ignoring our children right now we're just focusing on oh, how to increase workforce participation rate and so on if you don't focus on a, focus on the children as much we focus on the terms of like there two very marky um, you know policies in terms of right to education and the midday meal that has really changed the game on what we do for uh, our children but you know we need to go a step further i do that because a colleague of mine works in this space and you know we were having a conversation and i was like i want to write want to talk about it from the lens of uh, you know urbanization and clearly all these issues if you look at you know uh, all the sections in the book they are actually can be very different you know books altogether right but i have brought them all together to study what is indian political economy right now how it will play out for the coming decades through the lens of cities and that's why i picked up children also in in, in that regard now with comes to children it's 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 tricky because children do not have agency if women do not have agency you can still know because they will be able to vocalize it in some way or the other but children how will they vocalize that they do not have agency so you have to anticipate the agency and they might not look at agency in the manner that a grown up might look at like, right and that's why it is very difficult to envisage but i've just tried to put in myself into the shoes of children and just imagine you know what what is going wrong here and there in bunch of other things so one was of course the learning outcome thing right because the whole privatization of the housing and and the whole neighborhood culture going away and so on and so forth and then you were just staying in the school to take the bus because the traffic is too much your parents are afraid that you might have a injury there you just run to your home and just play within that space so the whole sort of one is the learning outcome education part of it the second is socialization the third is about reducing the public uh, distrust right if you grow up in just so many private spaces from housing to school to malls and to the sports complex and you're not socializing in public space then there's a huge distrust question that we are building across india so right that needs to be that will have to be addressed right then there is a whole element of crimes especially violent crimes against children so that is something that needs to be addressed and then of course traffic congestion is a problem because we do not have sidewalks and then the people hardly follow the zebra crossing thing and you know there are bunch of issues when it comes to congestion and and you know uh, uh, risk and injury when it comes to road transport there and 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 the unequal access to city which i again talked about because they cannot drive around someone will take them the public spaces are reducing where will they go where will they play and so on and so forth right their idea of life and maximizing life experiences is very different from a grown up and so is their agency right and the examples are 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 are, uh, are very interesting so there's a foundation called bernard van leer foundation which which has this initiative called urban 95 because 95 cm they imagine the height of a child and then they will try and look the city through the lens of the child and then they will sort of go about planning for it and so on and so forth there are a bunch of um, uh, states and cities in india that have started of experimenting with um, policemen who are trained in handling children right whether it's uh, when when a trauma a traumatic incident has happened um, in their family outside or they're involved in that 
then they should be able to speak to them, right? You create child-friendly cities through that, that you do not create trauma over trauma, right? Then there's a whole idea of creating more public spaces and parks, uh, which is just not a bland idea, but you try and create it where it's some, you map those facilities where more and more children can access it. But suppose if there's urban flooding, you can sort of use that facility to store more water and then children will, of course, not go there, but you will use that as a reservoir. Uh, I think I've mentioned an example in the, I'm forgetting the um, the city, but that has actually used that. I think it's Rotterdam that has used that, right? Then uh, you, there are some cities which have done a little bit of extreme work in terms of creating a separate infrastructure for children, which I think is also a little extreme because they need to be socialized with other sort of communities of cities as well. They do not, you know, and that would also be not very environment friendly. Uh, then there's a whole concept of participatory planning. So cities like Dhaka and Boston, they have started doing participatory planning where they ask inputs from children of different communities and, and sort of get to know. Because, you know, there's a lot of children who are in urban slums. Uh, one third of those children are stunted, right? Uh, a fraction of them are fully immunized, right? And there's a bunch of issues. Some A lot of, a large share of them are malnourished. They are, they're exposed to all sorts of risks and traumas, right? So you have to plan for a city that goes that far. And if you... And it's like, it's like if you have the goalposts that high and that far, the pursuit will never end. And that's a great pursuit to have, that your pursuit will never end. And second is that in catching up to that, you will create a lot of positive externalities. So, it, you know, a lot of people, when, when they read the book, they were like, oh, child-friendly is just too idealistic. How will you do this and that and so on and so forth? I was like, well, even if you're not trying for it, if you're not having that conversation, we'll definitely not go that far. So that is the whole idea of to sort of plug this conversation and I still, I, read, I wrote this paper for one of the think tanks uh, back during uh, COVID. And then I sort of used part of it as, as, a, as a section in the book. And I still continue to get uh, compliments on this chapter because there are a lot of concerned parents who might have Googled about it and they came across this paper. And then they have reached out to me, oh, thank you for talking about it because we're not talking about it. And, and, and it becomes their vulnerable section did not have agency and they have a different kind of issue than, than particularly male have who are, who are largely the planners. So. Uh, we have to look at for both from the gender perspective and also from the age perspective. Similarly, uh, I mean, it's for old people also, but that's a different kind of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And as you also point out in the book, urbanization is such a recent phenomenon. I mean, relative to human history that some of these issues, like you say, are genuine blind spots. It's something we have not really paid enough attention to. But uh, Devashish, thank you. We've covered a lot of ground in the last one hour. It's been a really good discussion. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Anirudh and, and the Carnegie team for sort of having me on this on on this podcast. Uh, and again, I, I I actually mean it that you have you and there are a few other podcasts that have created a body of work which has become a go to podcast for political economy and policy enthusiasts. So thank you so much. I mean, I feel extremely privileged and honored uh, to having a conversation with you about my book. At, at, at no for a Carnegie podcast. So thank you so much again. And I hope this incites further conversation. And I hope that I'm leaving you and your listeners with much more questions than answers. And that is the whole pursuit of the book. And to flip how they see India, Indian political economy and Indian cities and how to go about it. I'm sure it will do that, Devashish. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anirav. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 
To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at KarnegieIndia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.